0: And let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. On Sunday morning, we're studying the life of David together in a series entitled The Making of a Psalmist. We come now to chapter 19, verse 24. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, that is, King David. And he had not cared for his feet, he was lame, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. And so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, and I will ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house uh, were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? And so the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. And then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Let's pray together. Lord, we have sung of your holiness and song after song this morning, and it's it is our pleasure to do that. And, Lord, we're very glad that You're holy, that You're different in ways that are beautiful and pure, Lord. And we have no interest in You coming down to our level, Lord, and then commiserating with us in, in that condition. We like You just the way that You are. We like Your ways. We love Your ways, and we ask instead, Lord, that you would do what is on your heart, and that is to raise us up to your level, to your standard, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so as we turn to your Holy Word, as we do so in communion with your Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to set our lives apart more and more fully for your purposes. Lord, we think as we... Model our prayers after the model that Jesus gave us, our Father which art in heaven. We realize that we share you as a Father with so many in this city and all around this world. And we ask that as they worship you today and as they pray to you and as they turn to your word and study your word today, that you would meet with them also and bless them, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I suppose in the grand scheme of things concerning David's life, a life that it has included the slaying of a giant, uh, the killing of a bear and a lion with his own hands, a life that has included the, the, one of the greatest rags to riches story in all of human history as this shepherd boy known only to God ends up becoming the king of Israel and the greatest king in Israel's history a life that has included victory after victory after victory over the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people and then all of these high things and mountaintop experiences that were his but then a life that has also included the valleys and the deepest of valleys that a person can experience in, in life. This side of glory is he experiences the betrayal, the attempt to dethrone him, an attempt upon his life, not merely by the nation of Israel itself, but by his own flesh and blood, his own family, his own son, and by his own, one of his own counselors and best friends. And when you look at a life like David and you see all of these, you know, highs, high highs and the, these low lows that it can seem as if he lived all of his life in one of those two extremes. But he didn't and nobody does. Nobody can live in fifth gear all of the time. Most of life is lived in between those two places And an awful lot of life's lessons are learned in between those two extremes. But the problem is, is that when a person has experienced these kind of extremes, and so many, and so many that have, you know, kind of fashioned his life to think that what happens in between the two extremes are, uh, they can almost seem uh, minor or trivial, uh, but they aren't. And it's one of those kind of things that we come to this morning as we study uh, David's life. Something that seems minor in comparison to the, the bigger things in his life, but it isn't minor at all. David in this passage makes a mistake that every single one of us can be tempted to make. Whether we are a king in this world and that is God's call upon our life or whether he has called us Uh, to live a more anonymous life than that of a king, or to uh, have a title that is something uh, far less than the title of of a king. David makes a mistake here that uh, even godly people, even as David was a godly man, and, and as a man who was deeply spiritual and loved the Lord, he made a mistake here that, even those who are godly, even those who love the Lord the most, even those that are the most spiritual in the body of Christ. We have a great tendency to make the same mistake, that tendency to make hasty decisions, to make a rash judgment in a situation based upon incomplete information. In chapter 16 of Second Samuel, is the context for all that happens in the passage that we've just read when david fled the city of jerusalem at the uprising of his his son his son absalom leading a rebellion against him as they went off to the east and to the east of the city of uh, the ancient city of david was the mount of olives and david flees with his family with his wives with his children with the brave men that were uh, remaining loyal to him and all. And as they crest that Mount of Olives and they go down uh, on its east side of of even the Mount of Olives toward the wilderness out in, in that direction, a man by the name of Ziba comes to them. And Ziba leads two donkeys, and not merely two donkeys, but they are laden, laden with 200 loaves of bread. 100 clusters of raisins, 100 pieces of fresh fruit, and a, a flask of wine. And he brings these supplies to David. And David asks him, what's the meaning of these supplies that you've brought to me? And David and, and Ziba said, the food is for you and your family and the men who are with you. And the donkeys are for you and your family to sit on as, as you flee in this insurrection that has occurred in in jerusalem and david because he had fled so quickly that morning no time to to have 48 hours to put a food supply together as he's leaving he leaves they leave with the clothes on their back Uh, they leave without water they leave without food and and now on in his mind as he's now making his way to the wilderness he grew up in the wilderness he's not very far away From Bethlehem, where he was born and where he was raised, he knew every inch of the territory that he was heading out into. And he knew that a man of his own wits and skill and abilities and with a background in the desert, that he could keep himself alive. But to keep an entourage like this alive out into the desert, he had to wonder how in the world he was going to do it. If his son would not kill him, if his son's army would not kill him, then they would die of starvation and thirst out in the desert. But Ziba comes now with this food that David had not had the time to supply himself with. And when he sees this food, I mean, his heart must have been filled with tremendous thankfulness. At the thoughtfulness of Ziba to understand one of the foremost things in the king's mind in the midst of of so much that was going on. And I'm convinced that David appreciated it very much, took a load off of David's mind. All of these things that he's having to think about, and now here is one less thing to think about, what we'll eat for the next day or two. And David would have been grateful. I think, grateful beyond words, not only for the food, but for the demonstration of loyalty on Ziba's part toward him, to take and bring food to him in the midst of this crisis. And when David became king over all of the entire nation of Israel, when he became king not only of the southern kingdom of Judah, but over the northern tribes of Israel also, as is described in chapter 9 of Second Samuel, it would seem that when the day came that he became king over the entire nation, his thoughts began to drift to his old friend, now dead. His old friend, the son of the first king of Israel, Saul, his son named Jonathan. Jonathan, now long dead, wasn't able to live to see the day that David would become king. There were times in David's relationship with Jonathan when Jonathan was the only one of the two that believed God's promises that David would be the king. There were times when David thought concerning himself, I will not become king. Surely I'm like a dead man. Saul is going to kill me. And and Jonathan would rise up, though, you know, the apparent heir of of the, the throne. And he would encourage David's heart. Yes, one day you will be the king. You'll see it, David. God's promise will be true. Now the day that it occurs, his thoughts go back to his good friend. And I think that David wished that Jonathan were alive there to see that day. And as his heart is filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and love for his fallen friend, Jonathan, David asks if there's any man or or child left of Jonathan's lineage that he could bless and that he could demonstrate his love for Jonathan through because of the kindness that Jonathan had shown him. He now wanted to show kindness to the descendants of Jonathan. And a man by the name of Ziba, a servant in Saul's household, informs the officials of David, who then inform David, that there is a living descendant of Jonathan, a man by the name of Mephibosheth, who when he was five years old, in the city that he was being raised in, five years old when his father Jonathan and his grandfather uh, Saul were killed in that battlefield against the Philistines, the nursemaid grabbed him because they had to think that immediately the Philistines would come into the city and kill every part of the bloodline of Saul and Jonathan as was the custom in those days. And so knowing the danger that to the children, they scooped up the children and the nursemaid that grabbed Mephibosheth and began to flee with him somehow dropped him and in dropping him made him cripple in both of his feet. And Ziba informed David of the existence of, of this son of Jonathan. And Mephibosheth was called by King David to come before him. And when Mephibosheth was brought before King David, he had to fear for his life. Here is David. He's now consolidated his complete rule over the nation. And what typically would happen to the descendant of of Someone who was a former king was that that man would then use his power to kill everyone of the lineage. And David has no intention of, of hurting this man. And he makes it apparent to him immediately. And he tells him that he has a desire to show kindness to him because of the kindness that his father had shown to him. And he decreed to Ziba that all of the farmlands that once belonged to King Saul were now given to Mephibosheth. And he told Ziba that Ziba's servants and Ziba's family would become Mephibosheth's servants in the tending of the land to make it productive, and that the profits of that land would then go to Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth would not eat of any of the food that came from his own fields. As wonderful as that would be, But the Mephibosheth's portion would be, as a descendant of Jonathan, to sit at David's table every single day and to eat with his very own family. And that was Mephibosheth's portion forever. And Mephibosheth, so humbled by David's generosity, he bows down and he doesn't consider himself worthy of what it is that David has done for him. And Ziba vowed to obey the command that King David had given to him. And thus when Ziba, in chapter 16, the servant comes with the food to David, David asks him the obvious question, Ziba, where is Mephibosheth? Why has your master Mephibosheth not come with you? And Ziba explains that Mephibosheth has joined Absalom in his rebellion against King David. And that he has remained in Jerusalem in the hopes that the kingdom will be restored to the lineage of Saul and that Mephibosheth would now become the king of Israel. And all of it was a lie. All of it was pure slander against Mephibosheth. But David, when he listens to just one side of the story... He hears all he thinks he needs to know about the situation, and in, in his mind, uh, Mephibosheth is a traitor, and he proceeds to give all that he had given to Mephibosheth now to Ziba. And Ziba then expresses his gratitude to David for doing so. Now, the Bible declares in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, the first one, To plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Until his neighbor comes and gives his side of the story. And David is just about to learn the the truth of this the hard way. It's interesting that in ancient times, the rabbis, when someone would come into their presence to lay out a situation to them in terms of how the word of God ought to apply to the situation, if the other person involved in the situation was not present, they would physically cover their ear. They would listen with one ear, but they would communicate by that gesture to the person that was speaking that they knew there was another side to the story that was being told them. It's not a bad thing to do. That recognition that there are always two sides to a story and no one knows the truth about anything until they've heard both sides of the story. Now, Mephibosheth, which brings us into chapter 19, as David makes his way back toward Jerusalem now, having defeated his son now dead and having defeated the armies that had come against him in rebellion of, of the children of Israel, he now makes his way back into Jerusalem victorious as, as king. And he's accompanied by his family, by his wives, his children, the mighty men that had fled with, with him and had defended him. And then even the great men of war from Judah and from, from Israel. And as he's making his way in this tremendous entourage back into uh, the city of Jerusalem, Mephibosheth comes out of the city down to meet the king and greet him as he was making his way triumphantly back into the city. And then David, verse 25, upon seeing Mephibosheth, he asks him the question that he should have asked him before he ever made a decision to give his land away. And he said to him, verse 25, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Why did you not stay loyal to me and depart from the city of Jerusalem when I departed from the city of Jerusalem for my life? And then Mephibosheth gives his side of the story, verse 26, 27, and 28. And he said, My servant Ziba deceived me. It was my idea to join you in your moment of greatest vulnerability and to leave the city with you and to publicly align myself with you. And I sent Ziba to go and bring a donkey because I'm lame. I couldn't follow you with my own feet as everyone else had the luxury of doing. And I sent my servant to go to get a donkey for me to sit upon that I might leave with you. But Ziba then took my idea and made it his own idea. And he took donkeys not to come back and take me as I had commanded, but to load them down with food and to go and to bring all of these things out to you and left you with the idea that I had uh, turned traitor to you and, and, uh, and he abandoned me here in the city of Jerusalem and then he slandered me before you. My lameness made me vulnerable to the faithfulness of my servant to provide that donkey, and he never did. And Mephibosheth's outward appearance bore witness to the truthfulness of his account. His mustache, we're told, was untrimmed. His clothes had remained unwashed since the day that David had fled. His feet had been untended in all of their lameness, and apparently they required treatment of some kind. And he had denied himself any treatment of his feet, and all of the time that David had been displaced from the throne. In other words, he said to, he was saying to David by his appearance and, and saying to all who would see him, even in the city, I will not experience comfort. The comforts of Jerusalem, while my king is out in the wilderness, denied of these same comforts. The interesting thing is that all of these things that he did, failing to shave, and his clothes unwashed, and his feet untended, they were all signs of mourning. He was mourning over what it is that had happened to David, and the interesting thing is that he mourned openly. He mourned openly in the city at a time in which it was life and death dangerous to mourn openly for David and to publicly align with David. He had no guarantee that Absalom would not become aware of what he was doing and come and say, what in the world are you doing mourning over my father and all? This is treason against me. And Absalom could have easily, madman that he was, ordered the death of Mephibosheth, the death of his wife, the death of all of his children. It was a very dangerous thing that Mephibosheth had done in, in publicly aligning himself and expressing his loyalty toward, toward David. He risked his life to do it. And it's also telling that though Ziba is present with David and with all the men as they make their way back into Jerusalem, that when Mephibosheth stands before David and gives his side of the story, Ziba does nothing to contest the accuracy of the story. And so both parties are present and the truth now is established. Now you couldn't have two stories. That were more different than the accounts of these two men. How David chose to handle it is uh, a study in poor decision making for sure. I think as you read the passage you look and to me he's clearly impatient. Impatient. and and frustrated over having to deal with this matter at such a busy time in his life. He's trying to restore the kingdom. He's got a thousand and one things on his mind, and this is a peripheral issue in, in, in his mind, and so he quickly orders that the land be evenly split between the two men. He doesn't order that witnesses would be brought forth to establish the facts uh, in order that he might rule in this case justly. He just does what is most expedient for him in the present circumstance. It's, it's just like, uh, I've solved that. It's just one less thing in my end basket and uh, good riddance, and, and he moves on with the next thing in his life. And as a result of it, his, his judgment is, is, is less than ideal. Well... Someone might say, David didn't pay really a terrible price for having made this mistake. And and, uh, with a sentence, he just uh, makes the best of the situation and he he goes on his way. I don't agree with that. I don't agree. He does pay a price for it. Because it mars his testimony in the Scriptures. It's not a great marring, but it, it is a blotch nonetheless against against his his life the interesting thing to me is that we as we would look at it and say why would god consider this such uh, what is appears to be such a peripheral kind of issue why would he even uh, include it in his account why not just the rebellion and david is restored and just keep to the major kind of issues in all of this why would god include it except that he wants us to learn something as his people from David's mistake here. And I think clearly God is not pleased with it. And God wants us to know that he's not and also how to handle it because, again, David is a great lover of God, a deeply spiritual man. But all of us that are even in that category can fall prey to it. Hasty decisions. Rash judgments upon other people and situations on the basis of very, very incomplete information or on the basis of only one side of the story. The Bible declares, again, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, the first one to plead his cause seems right. Why wouldn't we believe him? Until his neighbor comes and examines him. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, He who answers a matter before he hears it, It is folly and shame to him. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15. The simple believes every word, but the prudent man considers well his steps. It's interesting that under the law of Moses, even that old covenant, facts were to be carefully established before judgment was made. And each side was to be able to give Their side of the story and the accused always had the right to face his accuser in a court of law. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness arises against any man... "...to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil person from among you." And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil, uh, such a slander among you. Now, Jesus followed this standard very, very closely in his teaching in the New Testament when he gave instruction for the resolution of conflict within the body of Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus taught, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, face to face. Two people know all of the facts about the situation, and only two people do other than God, the two people involved. God desires that they would come together face to face and attempt to resolve it on that level. But if there is difficulty resolving it uh, uh, on, on that level, he said, but if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established to bring two or three others along for the careful establishment of the facts concerning this particular situation or division. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And Jesus... lifts up the same kind of characteristics uh, in a judgment. Each side is to be able to give their side of the story. The facts are to be carefully established, and only then is judgment to be meted out. One side was not to be heard and, and believed to the neglect of the other side of the story. Again, in Proverbs eighteen thirteen, he who answers a matter before he hears it, that is, hears everything that needs to be heard related to the situation, it is folly and shame to him. God declares it's a foolish thing to do and that it leads to shame. And, and so it is, and so it does. Until a person talks to both parties involved, they have no hope of understanding the situation. They have no hope of coming to know the facts about any given situation. I would add that there are times, there are extraordinary times, that you can have both eyewitnesses present and still not know what the facts are. But no one has any hope of establishing the facts without having the both parties able to tell their side of the story. Now, we notice... The circumstances surrounding David's uh, wrong decision and rash judgment concerning Mephibosheth and that, that he comes to under the weight of, of Ziba's slander. And, and we see some, some of the things in David's life, the same things that can push us into hasty decisions or into rash judgments. Notice, first of all, David was under tremendous time pressure. Tremendous time pressure. I mean, the circumstances are crushing. I mean, he's fleeing Jerusalem for his life. He's trying to protect his family. He's assessing the situation in his mind literally by the moment. What it is that's happening around him, the damage, the danger, all of these things. And he's sending Zadok, the priest, back into the city. He sends Hushai, his friend and his counselor, back into the city. And so there's tremendous time pressure on on David at this point. And so he makes this quick decision. And haste is the enemy of good decisions. Where we're too hurried to establish the facts or the accuracy of the information. And when we're overwhelmed with too much to do and not enough time to do it. Better to put the decision off. Better to leave the decision untended. With that decision that David makes in in leaving Jerusalem and even in returning back into Jerusalem, neither of those decisions needed to be made at the moment. They easily could have been put off to a time that he could give it his, his proper attention. But we recognize it, don't we, in our own lives. The same tendency to be driven by the, the pressure of the situation. I notice also that David was in the middle of a crisis, wasn't he? Everything's unraveling all around him. Again, that's not the best time to make these kinds of decisions. It was also a time of tremendous emotional upheaval as, as they're weeping in, in mass heading out into the wilderness again not a great time to make that kind of a decision it was a time of great hurt a time of great betrayal when when people hurt us in a given situation David's deeply hurt in the betrayal that's occurred to him. And a little bit of loyalty shown by someone and he gives too much weight to the loyalty in the midst of kind of a fragile condition that he's in and he, and he oversteps everything in, in his decision making. And so these little things that someone will do for us in that, that kind of a context, they can, they can cause us to be manipulated into making the wrong decision. It's a time of fear, a time of panic. It's a time in which David had only partial uh, information, had faulty intelligence related to the situation. These are all things that can drive us to rash decisions, drive us to to hasty judgments. I noticed, too, uh, an absence of prayer on David's part in the midst of all of this. These are situations that occur in all of our lives. These things happen all of the time in my life, you know, in terms of these kinds of of pressures. And I I don't think I'm alone. But if I don't have the facts and I can't get the other side, rather than making a hasty and a wrong decision, any decision at all, It's best just to pray and give the situation to the Lord until I can do what's right in it. Now, this kind of of thing is very widespread and very, very damaging in the body of Christ. To believe things about other Christians in the body of Christ solely on the basis of one side of the story. Now, you tell me how widespread that is. Where our opinions of other Christians, of others who serve the Lord, are completely fashioned in our heart and mind by some slander, by some hearsay. We have never approached the other person to try and verify the facts to hear the other side of the story and how prone we can be then to live weeks and months and even long years thinking that we know everything about some Mephibosheth on the basis of the word of some Ziba and we know nothing about them and in fact the facts concerning the situation are the polar opposite of the ones that we believe to be True. David could not have been more wrong about Mephibosheth. That hasty moment, I don't need to know anything else about him, he's a traitor. What else could anybody say about this? And there he remains a traitor in David's mind. Until Mephibosheth comes to David. We don't know that David would have ever approached Mephibosheth as he ought to have been and David could not have been more wrong and a simple conversation would have cleared the whole thing up and the same thing goes on today in our lives just the privacy of our own hearts are there others in our lives That we consider them this or that or whatever and they're no good or they're this or they're all of this. And and to look at it and say that assessment is based completely on one side of the story. And I have violated the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and coming to that assessment. When I worked for the phone company... And uh, worked as a lineman and a cable splicer. If a man was a Ziba, he would be isolated very quickly. If a man became known as a slander of others that just spliced wires together, that just put poles in the ground and put cable in the air, If a man became known as this, he would not have a friend anywhere on the entire work headquarters. No one would want to be around him. Nobody would want to work with him. He would be branded forever by it. When I used to play sports in high school and then in junior college, if a man was a zyba, it was to isolate himself. Even the world won't put up with it. The world won't respect it in another person. And that's my experience. That in the body of Christ, this kind of thing is tolerated in a way that it is not even tolerated in the world. Where people speak Freely and slandering others, and one side of the story, and it is readily believed about a person for the rest of their lives. It is absolutely unfair. And it's interesting that God found a way here to rectify this thing in, in terms of David coming to learn all of the facts in, in the situation. I think that God works toward that, and it pleases him. It's the instruction of of his word, as I said again, Old and New Testament. But it's important for us, even more important, in the body of Christ, not to believe anything until I get both sides of the story. Ask, get both sides of the story. And if I'm unable to get both sides of the story or I'm unwilling to get both sides of the story, then I must leave it unjudged and to realize I know nothing about this situation until I have both sides. And I will give myself to prayer for all parties involved while I leave it unjudged in my heart. And then we'll be on safe ground. Then we will stay away from the ranks of the Zybas in our own relationships with one another. I tell you, I think it's a good lesson. I think it's a good lesson. So important for us. So practical concerning our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth of this. We don't recognize David as being some... Extraordinary sinner here, or some a person that is uh, terribly distant from any one of us, Lord, as descendants of Adam and Eve. Let us thank you today, we all do, for the lesson that you've included from his life here in this passage, so that it would be built into our lives. Help us, Lord, not only to cover one ear. In such situations. But then to be led by your spirit. Concerning whether we ought to even hear what is going into the other ear. Lead us Lord more quickly. To be involved in such situations through prayer. Rather than judgment on the basis of half the story. And then having that judgment be a part of our hearts. Unfairly so Lord. Toward other people. Not one of us would want that done to us, Lord. And, Lord, we don't want to do that toward another person. And I pray that as we sit here this morning, you would just search us by your Spirit. That if there's anything that you want to bring to our remembrance, there's something there, Lord, that we have misjudged on the basis of one side of the story, and you want to purge it from our lives this morning. I ask that you do it right now just identify it by your Spirit so that we can say to you, Lord, I know nothing about this situation because I have only one side of the story and I acknowledge that and I entrust the situation to you today, Lord, and I'll give myself now to prayer in the situation because I know I can be helpful and righteous in doing that. Cleanse us, Lord, this morning of this anywhere it's present. And then we pray, Lord, that you would take this passage and set it up as a protection in each one of our hearts, Lord, as we continue to love you and grow in you and serve you, Lord, for your glory in these last days. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.